So we're in the sixth week of our DNA series on our core values. And today, the core value I'm going to talk about is simple, yet it's profoundly significant. And it's this. People are important. You know, you don't have to look around very far to see that people don't feel as if they are important or valued. People look at themselves and think they don't count. They wonder whether it makes any difference at all whether they exist. They struggle with loneliness. They compare themselves to others and come out on the short end of that stick. I ran across some very disturbing research that was made from Jack Canfield of Chicken Soup for the Soul fame. It was a study that looked at a group of students all the way through school and when they went into first grade they took a self-esteem inventory and 80% of them scored high on that self-esteem inventory. By the fifth grade, that percentage had gone all the way down to 20%. By the time they graduated from high school, it was 5%. So we see this issue, this lack of self-esteem and self-worth, this sense that People don't feel good about themselves. We see that demonstrated in all sorts of negative behaviors. Probably the most devastating of all of those is when a person takes their own life. For a person to get to the point where they see that their life has no value, that they have no hope for the future, and all they want is to be out of the pain and take their life. It's an awful, terrible thing, isn't it? We've seen that recently in the news, some high-profile suicides, but I want to give you a statistic from our county. In 2017, in Butler County, 44 people committed suicide last year. pretty serious thing, isn't it? And lots of people don't get to that point of despair, but they struggle with this issue of feeling good about themselves. They struggle with feeling like they count, like they matter. And uh, it's a very, very Sad thing, and my guess is that some of you here today, if you were honest, and others who are watching us online could tell stories from your own experience of struggling with just feeling poorly about yourself. I just got back from vacation, and I read a book on vacation, and one of the, and one of the books I read was a book about this very thing from Dan Walters. Many of you know Dan, he pastored our Tri-County Church uh, for 
30-some years and retired a year ago, and now he and his family worships with us, and he has written a book, and it's about this very thing. I would recommend it to you. You can find it on Amazon. But I'm sure that lots of you, if you were honest, could tell about your own issues. I hear it all the time, whether counseling sessions or whether in my next step class for new people, lots of stories about pain and struggle and questioning who I am and how I count. So the question is, what's going on here? Why is that the case? Why do people struggle with having a healthy self-worth? Well, I certainly can't be exhaustive in my answer to that question, but I'll take a shot at it. I think, number one, sometimes there are physiological issues which can be helped with medication, and I think we need to pay attention to that. I think another reason is that people are affected by what they hear. If you hear negative, berating comments about yourself, it's very easy to internalize that and for that to change your own self-perceptions in a negative way. Some research at the University of Iowa suggests that an average two-year-old hears 432 negative statements in a day, but only 32 positive statements in a day. 432 negative statements, 32 positive statements. If that's true, then even at a young age, the odds are stacked against us. And it's no surprise that we come out feeling so poorly about ourselves. I think another thing is we get into this comparison game. We want to compare ourselves with other people. And here's the truth, friends. You can always find somebody better than you. Somebody that's prettier, somebody that's richer, somebody that's more athletic, whatever. And so, we end up feeling worse about ourselves when we look at those other famous people or people in magazines or whatever. And certainly, Jesus wants to remind us that we have an enemy whose job is to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said that in John 10.10. He does that by invading our minds with condemning thoughts. This is so subtle and pervasive, and it's so easy to get sucked into believing those lies and having it end up lead us to a place of disconnectedness and despair and despondency. So this core value that we're talking about today is so important for us 
to believe and embrace in our own lives and then communicate to one another, to our community, and to the world around us that people are important. I am important. You are important. This is not just a good idea taken from some positive thinking book. This is anchored in the very nature of God as He is revealed through Scripture. And so what I want us to do today is I want to take us through what Scripture says about how God values us. And I believe the truth of this Scripture can transform us if we'll choose to allow it to. So we start with the creation narrative. God created everything. And it was good, but it wasn't enough, and so he created man and woman in his image. This phrase, that we are created in the image of God. I think that's significant. What does that mean? Well, I think it means at least three things. Number one, we can know and be known. We have the capacity to understand and communicate our thoughts and our feelings to others. And we have the capacity to understand others' thoughts and feelings, which open the door to having a true relationship with another person. Another aspect of being created in the image of God is that we can think, we can decide, and we can create We have the ability to analyze data and to look at various options as to what to do with that and make decisions and make a plan and make things happen. Have you ever thought about how amazing man is in terms of his creative ability? When I was on my sabbatical back in April, I was downtown Chicago. Some of my family lives there. We were walking in Grant Park and they were in the middle of building this huge skyscraper and I just sat and I watched that and I thought, how in the world do they do that? And there are so many things that we could talk about, but the idea is that God has created us like Him with the ability to create. Finally, what it means to be made in the image of God is that we have the capacity to love. We can choose to do good, to act in the best interest of someone else, to truly love another. And that's what separates us from the other species. We are like God in that capacity. Psalm 139, 13 and 14 gives us a great picture of this. Let's read it together. For you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. So when you think about the idea that you are created in the image of God, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, I hope That makes you feel good about who you are. You are not random and insignificant. You are created by a loving, sovereign, powerful God. That's good news today. 
Another aspect of how we see God's valuing of us is to look at Jesus and how he treated people. You know, Jesus, Hebrews says, is the exact representation of God. So if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. So many different examples in Scripture about how Jesus valued people and loved people. But probably my favorite is found in Luke chapter 8. Let's look at that story together. Luke chapter 8, verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been the subject of bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then his daughter said, or then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So Jairus comes to Jesus and says, Please come to my house. My daughter's dying. And so Jesus agreed. So they headed that direction. And the text says that the crowds almost crushed Jesus. That makes me think of the end of football games when, you know, the stands empty onto the field, you know, can hardly move. That's what it was like for Jesus to make his way toward Jairus' house. At some point in the journey, Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? Now the disciples said, uh, Jesus, we don't mean to be mean, but that's really a dumb question. What do you mean who touched you? All these people are touching you. They're crowding in around you. Who touched me? But Jesus said, no, I felt power gone out of me. Someone touched me. And so he stopped the whole parade and he said, who touched me? Can you picture that scene? Everybody stopped. They back up. Jesus says, who touched me? Nobody says anything. The disciples are over here going, Jesus, Jairus' daughter is dying. Come on, we got to go. What are you doing? But Jesus didn't budge and he waited. And finally, this woman comes out of the crowd and falls at Jesus' feet, trembling in fear. She was afraid because, first of all, she was a woman. And in that culture, women were not highly valued. They had no authority. They had no rights. They were considered to be inferior to men. And now, knowing that she is the cause for this whole procession to stop, she's got to feel incredibly embarrassed. But she realizes that Jesus has singled her out 
And so she finally falls at his feet. Plus, the text says that she had had an issue with bleeding for 12 years. Well, according to the law of Moses, that made her unclean. So she had no business touching this prophet. And now she knows that she's in big time trouble. Jesus looks at her. And he bends down. And he looks at her in the eye and she, he said, tell me your story. This woman is shocked by his compassion. And she doesn't know what to do, but Jesus encouraged her. And so she begins to tell her story of 12 years of trying to seek out doctors, and hoping to get better and only getting worse. And hearing that Jesus might be passing by. And so she thought, if I could just touch his coat, maybe I could be healed. And so she says, Jesus, I touched you. I'm the one. But I'm healed. My bleeding has stopped. I'm whole. Thank you, Jesus. And Jesus looks at her and commends her faith. Wow. Isn't that a great picture? I mean, here's Jesus with important work to do, allowing this interruption to stop everything so he could focus on this woman. And he listened to her and he heard her story and he loved her. And he commended her for her deep faith. Wow. That's just awesome. We see this very same thing in how Jesus related to the twelve that he had called. Now if you know anything about the twelve disciples, you know that they were not all first round draft picks, right? I mean, Jesus was criticized over and over again for picking these guys. Jesus, why are you hanging out with this tax collector? Why are you hanging out with these fishermen? Jesus paid no attention, but he was with them for three years. He would teach to the crowds, but then he would go to the 12 and he would say, what did you think? What did you hear there? Then he would send them out into ministry and then they would come back and they would retreat together and he would hold them accountable for what he had called them to do and he would ask them, how did it go with you? And he would listen to them and encourage them and coach them. One of those stories that Jesus told was Luke chapter 15. In fact, three little stories in one chapter where Jesus talked about this shepherd that had a hundred sheep 99 were in the fold. One was lost. You know the story. The shepherd went out after that one lost sheep, finally found it, rejoiced as he brought it home. The pictures I've seen around his shoulders, carrying that little lost sheep back to the fold. And the woman that lost the coin, who celebrated when she finally found it. And then the third story of the lost son, you know, the younger son that decided he was done living 
with the old man and it was time for him to be out on his own and he demanded all of his inheritance and he went out and he wasted it all partying and then he ended up hungry, broke, embarrassed, comes crawling home. The father rushes out to meet him, embraces him, forgives him, celebrates his return. The point is the same in every one of those stories. People are important. God loves that one lost sheep. God loves that rebellious teenager. God loves all of us. Jesus didn't just teach about it because his most powerful, concrete act of placing value on every one of our lives was what he did when he sacrificed his life for us by dying on a cross. Listen to what Romans 5 says. Chapter 6. You see, just at the right, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So friends, from cover to cover, the message is clear and powerful. God loves you. He has created you in his image and you have you have value and worth that is limitless because of his love for you. That's the core value. That's, that's the good news that we share today. So my question is, okay, what's the takeaway here? What do we do with this? Well, I think it has to start with us. We need to come to the point where we embrace this truth at the very core of our beings. That it becomes our foundation. It becomes our identity. So today, if you struggle with thoughts like, I don't count. I'm a loser. I can't, nobody would love me. Can I just say to you, those thoughts don't come from God, friends. You have an enemy that is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy you. And so it starts with you recognizing those thoughts and where, they're come, where they come from and choosing to discard those, to say those are lies and I choose not to believe them. And instead, I choose to believe everything I'm talking about today, that I 
have infinite value from a God who created me and loves me and from Jesus who died for me. I think that's where it starts for each of us to come to that point in our lives where we deeply believe that and place our very identity right there. There may be somebody that would say, well, that all sounds good, but you don't know what I've done. Or you don't know what's been done to me. If someone has abused you, if someone has rejected you, or if you've done awful things, I'm so sorry to hear that. But friends, hear me. This is not about you and how good or bad you are. This is about the nature of our God and how deeply He loves you and how much value He places on you. You don't have to be defined by what happened to you or what you did back there. You can choose even today to embrace this truth, to receive God's forgiveness if you need to, and to begin from that strong center of love to be the person God has called you to be. So, so it starts with us, but it doesn't end there. Because God wants us to be vessels through which this message gets communicated. This is our calling individually and as a local church here at Westchester Nazarene. This is what we're about. Sending this message that says you are important. We value you. I heard a statement once that I just have never been able to get away from, and it's this. You will never lock eyes with someone who doesn't matter to God. Therefore, they should matter to you. Can I say that again? You will never lock eyes with a person who doesn't matter to God. Therefore, they should matter to you. See, if we really believe that, it's going to have a radical impact on how we treat others. We're going to choose to love people, to act in their best interest, to build them up, to encourage them, to listen to them, to seek to understand them, to serve them, to respect them, never control or manipulate them. And that starts with our families. Today's Father's Day. Dads, that starts with you, with your wife, with your kid. And our friends and our church family. But it doesn't just end there. It extends on and on and on because God places that same value on every person that lives in this globe. That's one of the reasons I love the fact 
that we take work and witness trips. We have a work and witness trip right now in the Ukraine. Pastor Alex is there with them. So why would this whole group of people spend roughly $2,000 of their own money, fly 27 hours one way, and serve people they don't even know for like 10 days, 12 days, whatever it is? Because they believe what we're talking about today. Because every person matters. On this Father's Day, I want to honor my dad. He lived out this value in such profound ways. And I'm not going to take time to tell you stories of it, but I'll just say it had a life-changing impact on my life. And I know that to whom much is, much is given, much will be required. And this value was tested in my life early on in ministry. After I graduated from Mount Vernon Nazarene University, my first ministry assignment was at Denver First Church of the Nazarene. I was the senior high pastor. Not very many years into that, a kid started coming to my youth group by the name of Brian Watson. Wow. Brian was a handful. He was a challenge. He was brought into the group from his single mom who brought his older brother and younger sister. Brian was loud. He was disrespectful. He would lie to you. He would steal. I mean, he was an out-of-control teenager. It got to the point where the business administrator of our church, Dave, met with me and said, all right, it was, you know, a Monday after Brian had stolen something again from the church. And Dave said, all right, this guy's got to go. You've got to meet with his mom and him, and you've got to tell him he is no longer welcome on this campus. I, I understood his behavior. I agreed. But I felt so uncomfortable about the thought of having to have that conversation. And so I said to Dave, are there any conditions under which Brian can stay? And Dave thought about it and he said, well, I suppose if you are willing to take responsibility for him and be with him 100% of the time that he is on this campus, then he can come. Well, my first thought about that was, oh, no. Oh, no. Brian Watson with me 100% of the time. There's no way I'm going to agree to that. But then the Holy Spirit said, hey, he's worth it. Where is this kid going to end up if somehow somebody doesn't intervene in his life? So I said, okay, we'll give it a shot. So I met with his mom and him and explained the deal. And so away we went. And it wasn't easy. There were a couple of times that Brian escaped my supervision and uh, had to pay the penalty. And for a couple of weeks, he wasn't allowed to attend church. But then I would call him back and say, you ready to try this again? And he would. And after about six months, Brian made a spiritual commitment. He gave his life to Jesus. 
And it was an awesome thing. Well, that was over 30 years ago. Guess what Brian is doing right now? He's a missionary. He's a missionary. He's a teacher of a Nazarene school. I think we even have some pictures of him. There's Brian right there with his new wife. He is the principal of a Nazarene school in Belize, Central America. So what would have happened if we would have said, that kid's not worth it. He's too much trouble. You think he'd be a missionary right now? I don't think so. But I'm so blessed and so humbled that God has given me the opportunity to communicate his love to people like Brian and lots of people like Brian throughout the years. And that's the challenge for all of us. Not to give up, but to love people until God can change them.